Ezekiel knows the Lord well and responds appropriately. Only you know the answer to that question. While the prophet would surely have assumed such a thing was completely impossible, when dealing with the God of Israel, such a word might not apply the way that it normally does. The Lord then gives the prophet a message to speak to the bones in the vision. The Lord tells him that Ezekiel must address these bones with promises. I love this line from commentator Christopher Wright. Now, it is a well-attested anatomical fact that although ears have many bones, bones do not have any ears. To preach to bones is even more futile than preaching to the deaf. Verse 5 then gives the big picture summary. I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Now, the imagery of the vision turns on recognizing a pun, a play on words. The Hebrew word ruach can be translated as spirit with a lowercase s, spirit with a capital S, wind or breath. And our English Bibles track pretty well with what seems to be the clear distinctions intended in this passage. Thus, the promise to the bones is that the Lord is going to recreate them. Just as he caused breath to enter the physical body of Adam in Genesis 2-7 so that he became a living creature, the Lord is going to cause breath to enter these dry bones so that they live. Verse 6 then fills out the picture as the Lord promises to bring physical completion to these dry bones. Verse 5 by itself could envision living skeletons. But verse 6 assures the prophet that these are going to be fully functional human beings. But the most important promise is at the end of verse 6, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. An indication that these people are going to live in relationship with the Lord. Let's see what happens. We pick up the prophet's account in verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Pause there. So Ezekiel stated the promises of verses 5 and 6, and he watches and listens as those promises are immediately fulfilled. The sound he hears, often translated as a rattling, is often considered to be the sound of the bones coming together. We've all perhaps taken two dog bones and knocked them together. We know the sound. But the word Ezekiel used to describe what he heard usually refers to an earthquake, as the ESV footnote tells us. I think that's more likely what's going on. The earth quakes in the vision as the Lord himself shows up to reassemble these bodies. But at the end of verse 8, something is missing. The most important promise repeated in verses 5 and 6 has not yet happened. No breath. And if there's no breath, then there's no life. In verse 9, the Lord instructs the prophet to speak again. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Ezekiel was first instructed to speak to the bones. Now he's commanded to speak to the breath. Back in verse 5, the Lord had promised that he would cause breath to enter these bones. Now he will do so through the words of the prophet. Chris Wright comments, he just spoke aloud with ordinary words. No magic, no incantations, no conjuring tricks with bones, just the living power of the word of the living God invading the valley of the shadow of death. You can't see breath or wind. It's invisible to the eye, typically. So Ezekiel speaks into the air and commands the breath to come from all directions. When Ezekiel spoke... The breath came into them, and the people lived. He describes them as an exceedingly great army. In verses 11 to 14, we get the Lord's explanation for what this is all about. We already peeked ahead at this. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, 
Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. The prophet Ezekiel received the vision of the valley of dry bones as a picture for himself. The whole house of Israel was slain. Now, many individual Jews were literally killed by the Babylonians. But that's not who is pictured in Ezekiel's vision. Rather, it's the survivors, the exiles. They are pictured as having been slain. And they are pictured as having been left unburied, which shows they are under the covenant curse as specified in Deuteronomy 28, 25, and 26, which says, Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. The picture is showing them as they view themselves, but there's truth to their perspective. They are in exile under God's judgment, under the curse. In that sense, they are dead. What can restore their life? Who can lift the curse? Only the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. That is what is pictured here. Thus, when the prophet speaks, the breath enters the bones and they are refashioned into living humans. But notice the imagery shifts in verses 11 to 14. It's no longer a valley where dry bones have been left out in the sun to rot and decay. Rather, the Lord refers to their graves. The prophet is no longer addressing the bones in the vision. He's addressing the actual Jews in exile. So the breath giving life to the bones was meant to be a picture of the restoration of exiled Israel. Exile is death. And to be raised from their graves is meant to be a picture of them being returned both to the land from Babylon and also to relationship with the Lord from being estranged. It's also important to notice the two-stage nature of this restoration. Ezekiel prophesied to the bones, and the bones reconnected with skin on. This probably represents the return of Israel physically to the land. But then Ezekiel prophesied to the breath, and the breath gave the people life. This probably represents the return of Israel spiritually, to relationship with the Lord. And that return only happens in connection with the new covenant. This vision has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled today. The Jews returned to the land from Babylon after about 70 years of of exile. But Jews began returning to faithful relationship with the Lord when the new covenant was established in the death of Jesus, the Messiah so that he would send the Holy Spirit to enter and live in those who believe in him. That is how the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones is fulfilled. Now, as it turns out, when Jesus dies on the cross, there are some literal graves outside Jerusalem that are opened, and there are some literal saints who are raised to then enter the city I think Matthew words his description of this mysterious event in such a way as to remind us of Ezekiel 37 in order to suggest a kind of pre-fulfillment of this grand prophetic vision. We'll look at that in just a few minutes. We're wrapping up Matthew's gospel really soon. And last week we saw the king of the Jews die on the cross. This morning we consider the aftermath. And in the aftermath of Jesus' death, Matthew, uniquely among the gospel writers, describes several happenings. That's a literal translation of a particular word we'll see in the passage this morning. As he describes these happenings, he presents seven testimonies that help us readers understand the significance of Jesus' death. When Jesus cried out on the cross in the words of Psalm 22, 1, We considered his experience of abandonment as he endured God's wrath. However, that abandonment was only momentary. 
As Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, the father has not abandoned his righteous suffering son, and he gives an earth-shaking, tomb-breaking, curtain-tearing ceremony to celebrate. He unmistakably affirms that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. We're looking at Matthew 27, verses 51 to 66. But I want to take these testimonies one at a time and consider carefully what each one testifies to us. Jesus didn't have any witnesses for his defense as he was accused by the Jewish leaders and sentenced to crucifixion by the Roman governor. But following his execution, a marvelous sevenfold tapestry of testimony unfolds before our eyes. First, let's consider the testimony of the temple there in the first part of verse 51, Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Who could rip this curtain? God alone. Note the passive voice. The curtain was torn by God. Notice that Matthew mentions the earthquake after this. So God probably didn't use an earthquake to cause the curtain to tear. I suspect the events of verses 51 to 53 happened rapidly, though, so observers could have easily assumed that the earthquake caused the curtain to tear, and such a thing actually did happen, apparently rather regularly in earthquakes in Jerusalem. In fact, Jewish tradition indicates that the curtain was replaced twice every year, which would allow the priest to easily cover up the ripping of this curtain at this particular moment. Matthew doesn't clearly specify which curtain was torn, but a good case can be made for the innermost curtain, the one that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. If so, the only people who saw this happen would have been the priests. This happened when Jesus died, so it would have been the ninth hour, which is the hour the priests would have been busy sacrificing animals for the daily evening sacrifice. Thus, they'd be right there applying animal blood to the altar right in front of the curtain as it ripped from top to bottom. So what's the message? I've called this the testimony of the temple, but of course it's actually the testimony of God. But he uses the temple to communicate this testimony. The message could be stated in Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has passed away and the new has come. The time of the temple is over. No more animal sacrifices. No more barriers between God and sinners. The curtain was embroidered with images of cherubim, as we looked at around Christmas time last year. The terrifying guardians of God's presence, which reminded Jews that the way into God's presence has been shut. Death is required to come to God. God had graciously accepted the death of animals in the place of the death of His people but no more. Now the death of Jesus has been accepted. The way into God's presence has been opened, and God has done it. As Jesus had said, the temple's days are numbered. The tearing of the curtain is a token pre-fulfillment of the destruction of the whole temple, which God would bring about through Roman armies about 40 years after Jesus' death. The new has come now. The way to enter and maintain a relationship with the one true God is through Jesus and Him alone. He died to bring sinners to God. He died to establish a new covenant relationship between sinners and a holy God. No more temple, no more animal sacrifices, and no more Jewish priests. That is what God testifies through the tearing of the temple curtain. Next, we hear the testimony of the earth in the second part of verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. More passive verbs. Literally, we have, and the earth was shaken by God. The rocks were split by God. And the word split reflects the same Greek word translated torn with reference to the curtain. What does God testify when he shakes the earth? Psalm 18.7 tells us, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. The Lord has poured out His wrath. Jesus' death was not a simple travesty of human injustice. Rather, Jesus was enduring the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He asked 
his heavenly father, if the cup could pass over him without him having to drink it. He knew he didn't deserve to drink it. He knew that he had never done anything to provoke God's wrath. But there was no other way to save sinners. The cup must be drunk. And it could have been drunk by those who deserve to drink it. But by those for whom the cup was poured. Or it could be drunk by a willing, perfect substitute. Jesus volunteered to endure the wrath of God on the cross in his death. The earth quaked because God was angry and God had poured out his wrath on his son. Matthew may also recognize the earth's quaking here as an allusion to Ezekiel's description of the sound he heard in his vision as the quaking of Ezekiel 37.7 preceded the bones returning to life. And Matthew transitions immediately into the testimony of the dead in verses 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many. This may have been the result of the earthquake or the splitting of the rocks, which may have included some of those great stones often set to seal tombs. The tombs were opened by God. There's that passive voice again. This echoes Ezekiel 37, 12, which suggests that Matthew saw this event as announcing the true end of the Jewish exile. The new covenant has been established in Jesus' death, and the whole house of Israel may now return to God. The testimony of the dead could be expressed in the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Timothy 1.10. Jesus has abolished death through his death. The Puritan theologian John Owen expressed this in the title of one of his most well-known books, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Ironically, the death of Jesus caused resurrection. Jesus' death was a life-giving death. Now, questions abound at this point. Matthew doesn't give us very many details about this event. He says that many bodies were raised, but he doesn't tell us how many. He doesn't indicate whether we're talking about five or 50 or 500. He refers to those raised as saints. The only time in Matthew's gospel that he uses this term for people. Thus, he doesn't specify who these people are. He describes these holy people as some who had fallen asleep, a common euphemism for death. But he doesn't tell us whether they died long, long ago or whether they had died fairly recently. Finally, what is the nature of their resurrection? Were they raised like Lazarus so that they would die again? Or were they raised like Jesus with glorified bodies so that they would have presumably ascended to heaven before Jesus' ascension? Another question we could raise that Matthew leaves not completely unanswered but ambiguous is when exactly were these saints raised? It's pretty well agreed upon that the tombs were opened right after Jesus died on the cross on Friday evening. But if the saints were restored to life at that moment, when then Matthew says they don't come into Jerusalem until after Jesus' resurrection on Sunday morning. So did they just hang out in their tombs until Jesus rose from the dead? Or does Matthew intend us to imagine that they weren't actually raised until after Jesus' resurrection? But he tells the story in connection with Jesus' death. As you can imagine, students of Scripture venture different answers to all of these questions. I'll offer an interesting historical fact, and then I'll sketch out how I think this played out. But just know this. Matthew doesn't really care to tell us answers to these questions because he wants us to keep our focus on Jesus. So don't get distracted by these holy ones. Keep your eyes on the holy one. So as far as history is concerned, it fascinates me to realize that there are no historical claims that I know of or that I could find that suggest anyone ever wrote about these saints in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that they appeared to many people, but there doesn't seem to be anyone who wrote down for posterity who these people were or what it was like. Then I add to that the historical absence 
the, I add to that historical absence the fact that the three individuals in the Gospels who were restored to life by Jesus also don't show up in history. Lazarus is the only one whose name we know from John's Gospel, but even he didn't get interviewed by an historian and didn't seem to leave a record of what it was like to die and come back to life. Those facts suggest to me that the resurrection of these saints was like the resurrection of Lazarus. People who had followed Jesus, who had died and been buried around Jerusalem, perhaps in the days leading up to Passover, they were restored to their families as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. Thus, I believe that their tombs were cracked open through the earthquake on Friday afternoon, and at that moment, God restored the breath of life to them. Then I think they probably left their tombs and went to see their families first. And then, after Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, they joined the other disciples in Jerusalem. Their entry into Jerusalem may be intended as a picture of the restored people of Israel from Ezekiel 37 as re-entering the land. Jesus died. God sent the Spirit to restore the lives of these saints. And then Jesus, as the risen Messiah, the resurrected Son of David, that Ezekiel spoke of in earlier chapters of his prophecy, leads them into the city of Jerusalem. Death has been defeated. The resurrection and restoration of God's people has begun. The church will prevail. In verse 54, we read about the testimony of the Gentiles. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. These Gentile soldiers were likely a part of the battalion that earlier so viciously mocked Jesus' kingship. Now, they see him a bit differently. We could translate very literally from this verse that they saw the earthquake and the happenings, the things that happened. (laughs) What did they see? Well, as part of the aftermath, they saw the earthquake, and they probably saw the rocks split. Depending on how quickly the resurrected saints left their tombs, they may or may not have seen them walking around, but unless they saw them actually exiting their tombs directly, they may or may, they may not have known who they were or where they had come from. However, in addition to the earthquake, Matthew may intend us to recognize that they're seeing the three-hour midday darkness, as well as the way Jesus died, were factors that influenced their testimony here. Mark's account focuses on their seeing the way Jesus died. It's unlikely that they saw the temple curtain ripped. In any case, Matthew describes their emotional response as, according to the ESV, they were filled with awe. The the New American Standard is probably better here. They became very frightened. This is the same phrase Matthew used to describe Peter, James, and John's reaction to seeing the transfiguration in Matthew 17. This positive testimony from Gentiles is surely foreshadowing, yet again, the gospel being proclaimed to all the nations. Gentiles will join Jews in believing and proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. But what does the centurion mean by this statement? Let's take a quick peek at Luke's account. In Luke 23, 47, we read, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now, the word translated innocent is usually translated as righteous. Now, also, perhaps the centurion said both of these things. He was innocent, righteous, and he was the son of God. But the Gentile centurion could be meaning a couple of different things with these words. Truly, this was the son of God. He could be saying that Jesus was a son of one of the Roman gods. He could have, been, he could have seen the earthquake as an omen from the gods, perhaps testifying to their approval of this man. Or they may have meant nothing more than this, than that this man has the spark of the divine in him or something mystical like that. So we should be a bit cautious about concluding that the centurion and these other Roman soldiers became Christians or got saved. Nevertheless, Matthew, as he writes the story, wants his readers to see that Jesus is the son of God with the fullness of meaning 
that that phrase can have for Old Testament readers. And that it is a Gentile who affirms this first post-crucifixion confession points forward to the Great Commission. Next, we get the testimony of the women. Look at verses 55 and 56, and then we'll go ahead and jump down to verse 61. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Down to verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. It is often observed that women were last to the cross, first at the tomb, and first to see the risen Jesus. This is the first time Matthew has drawn attention to the fact that women followed Jesus throughout his ministry. Luke, famously, focuses on them more often. To quote Pastor Doug O'Donnell, don't underestimate the girls in the Gospels. Without the girls, there are no Gospels. At least no good news ending to the Gospels. Think about that. The testimony of the women comes in the words of the Apostle Paul. As a key part of his summary of the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul simply says, he was buried. How do we know Jesus was buried? None of the apostles witnessed it, but these women did. John Calvin has a wonderful reflection on this point. He wrote, but not without reason did the evangelists bestow the chief praise on the women, for they deserved the preference above the men. In my opinion, the implied contrast suggests a severe reproof of the apostles. Accordingly, when they afterwards proclaimed the gospel, they must have borrowed from women the chief portion of the history. From John's gospel, we know that Jesus' mother was there, and John was able to escort her to the cross a short time before Jesus died, perhaps taking advantage of the three-hour midday darkness. In that moving scene that only John records, Jesus essentially arranges for a reverse adoption. John is given responsibility for caring for Jesus' mother, Mary, even though John's mother is still alive. In fact, John's mother is standing right there. Matthew doesn't mention Jesus' mother as being at the cross when Jesus died, and that's probably because John took her home before Jesus died. So who remained at the cross? Matthew says many women... But he specifies three. When the women are listed in all of the Gospels, Mary Magdalene is always listed first, suggesting her prominence as a follower of Jesus and her importance as a witness. She may also have been considered a leader among the women. Magdalene is not her last name. It's a kind of nickname to distinguish her from all the other Marys running around. One writer observes, Mary was the most common Semitic name for females in Palestine during the period and was shared by approximately 21% of Jewish women, according to the records we have. Thus, Magdalene refers to her town of origin. She is Mary of Magdala. However, this is an odd way of identifying a woman in their world. Normally, she'd be identified in relationship to her family, Mary, daughter of so-and-so, Mary, husband of, uh, wife of so-and-so, or Mary, mother of so-and-so. This may indicate that she has no family. Luke tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of her, the only person we know of who was set free from multiple demons at once, except for the famous man from the Gadarenes. Matthew mentions a second Mary, the mother of a James and a Joseph. John probably identifies this woman as the wife of Clopas, her son, is most likely the other James among the twelve, but Matthew has indicated that his father's name was Alpheus. In this case, Alpheus and Clopas are probably the same man, or you have a remarriage situation going on. It's hard to tell. Keeping track of the women at the end of the Gospels is a difficult task. Um, Matthew finally specifies the mother of the sons of Zebedee, but he doesn't give her name. Uh, She's the mother of James and John. Mark gives her name as Salome. The sons of thunder were scattered when Jesus was arrested. John returned long enough to escort Jesus' mother to the cross for a brief goodbye. But as Jesus breathes his final breath, James and John are in hiding with the other nine apostles. Only these women remain. The two Marys stick around long enough to watch Jesus' body placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The testimony of women was not generally accepted in the ancient world. 
Historically, this provides strong evidence that the gospel writers didn't make this story up. But theologically, a greater point is on display. We see here, as in the crucifixion itself, to borrow Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 1, God choosing what is low and despised in the world, what is weak in the world, in order to shame the strong as an adornment of the very gospel itself. It is the women who testify of the burial of Jesus. But Matthew also narrates that burial itself. Let's consider the testimony of the rich man, Joseph. Look at verses 57 to 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Let's first make a big picture observation. There's a righteous Joseph at the beginning and end of Matthew's gospel who transports Jesus' body and protects him. Again, we should marvel at the beautiful artistry of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew records zero words from the mouths of either Joseph. Instead, their deeds speak, revealing their faith. Matthew introduces this Joseph as a rich man and as a disciple of Jesus. This contrasts with the rich young ruler who encountered and walked away from Jesus in Matthew 19. It seems that this rich man, Joseph, has squeezed through the needle's eye, if you remember the imagery there from chapter 19. Jesus' family members are not here to take care of his dead body. That's a major dishonor in their culture. Jesus' apostles also are unwilling to fulfill the responsibility. One writer points out how John the Baptist's disciples treated him far better, coming to retrieve and bury his body after he was beheaded by Herod. John indicates that Joseph was a secret disciple because he was afraid of being persecuted by other Jewish leaders. Mark tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin and as a secret disciple of Jesus, Luke tells us that he didn't agree with the council's decision to execute Jesus. Luke doesn't say that he opposed the decision, however. Perhaps he here finally chooses to publicly reveal his devotion to Jesus. Feeling guilty for his failure to use his position to help Jesus, he now uses his wealth and influence to provide for Jesus' body. The testimony of Joseph comes in words that he would have known by heart, but he probably didn't understand how they were being fulfilled in his very actions. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah composed his famous suffering servant poem, which includes this intriguing statement in Isaiah 53, 9. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man. As a victim of crucifixion, Jesus' body would have been tossed into a mass grave, left unburied, left to dry and to rot like the bones in Ezekiel's vision. And Isaiah's song indicates that he was, that was to be the lot of the servant. The suffering servant was assigned a grave among the wicked, dying under the curse of God, undeserving of a proper burial. Yet, the song provides a mysterious poetic parallel line. When the servant actually dies, he'd be joining a singular rich man. The poem is ambiguous. Are are we to read a contrast between the two lines? Or is the singular rich man among the many wicked of the first line? Joseph unknowingly plays the role of the singular rich man. And Luke explicitly describes him as a righteous man. The same word Luke has the centurion speaking of Jesus just a few verses earlier. Thus, the testimony of Joseph is that Jesus is the suffering servant Isaiah sang about. Joseph approaches Pilate to request permission to take Jesus' body away and care for it. We might wonder if Pilate knows Joseph. Does he recognize him as a member of the Sanhedrin that just brought Jesus in for execution? If he does, we're not told about Pilate's suspicions. What would a member of the Sanhedrin that just called for this man's execution want with the crucified corpse? None of the gospel writers suggest that Pilate suspects anything weird. Matthew simply notes that Pilate grants his request. Thus, Joseph lowers Jesus' lifeless body from the cross, and John's gospel tells us that famous Nicodemus joins Joseph 
and they apply aromatic spices to Jesus' body and wrap it up with clean linen. Then Matthew tells us that Joseph laid the body to rest in his own new tomb. That detail is very important. That it was a new tomb indicates that it didn't have any other bodies in it. Typical Jewish tombs, especially of wealthy families, were often rather large caves with several shelves installed where the bodies of deceased family members would be laid to rest. New Testament scholar Tom Wright fills out the picture. The bodies weren't put in coffins or burnt to ashes, but wrapped in a cloth along with perfumes and spices. The body would then be put on a shelf or ledge inside the cave. Then, when the flesh had all decomposed, friends or relatives would collect the bones, fold them up neatly, and put them in a bone box known as an ossuary. Often, several bodies would be on ledges in the same tomb. It's possible Joseph has recently relocated to Jerusalem and has established a new burial plot for his family, but no one has died to occupy the tomb yet. This fact helps establish the uniqueness of the tomb. Its newness would have stood out among the other nearby tombs in the eyes of the women who were watching. Also, that Joseph buries Jesus' body in his tomb shows that he considers Jesus to be part of his family. Finally, a great stone is rolled in front of the entrance to prevent grave robbers or animals from doing harm to the body. Joseph's actions are unwitting testimony to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic servant song. But Joseph's burial of Jesus also says something else. He did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. He, like everyone else, assumed that the life of Jesus is over, permanently. We might say that Joseph put the nail in the coffin of the messianic hopes surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. Or rather, he rolled a great stone in front of them. But there's one final testimony Matthew tells us about, the testimony of the Jewish leaders. Look at verses 62 to 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The timing notice is odd. The day of preparation refers to the day the Jews would spend preparing for the Sabbath, what we call Friday. They had to prepare extra food and finish up some extra household chores before sundown on Friday to prepare to rest on the Sabbath. So the day after is Sabbath. This is very odd. After all the times the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, this would seem to be a good opportunity for Matthew to explicitly show that the Jewish leaders are doing something very bad on the Sabbath. But he mutes that connection. This may simply be an indication that Matthew and his Christian readers no longer observe Sabbath since they recognized that Jesus had indeed fulfilled that aspect of the Mosaic law as well. Nevertheless, the testimony we see from these Jewish leaders, even as they continue to scheme and plot against the Lord and against his anointed one, as Psalm 2 puts it so memorably, is this. Jesus' disciples will tell the people that Jesus has risen from the dead. Of all the things they say to Pilate here, those are the truest words. And thus they unwittingly testify to the proclamation of the gospel by Jesus' followers, starting in Jerusalem and then spreading through Judea, Samaria, all the way to all the nations and to the ends of the earth. They refer to Jesus as an imposter, as the ESV has it. Normally the word is translated as deceiver. But nevertheless, they remember Jesus' words accurately. In fact, it might be said that they remember his words better than his disciples. Apparently, the disciples failed to remember that Jesus said, after three days, I will rise, though he said that to them repeatedly. If they had but remembered, remembered and believed, but neither the disciples nor the Jewish leaders believed that he would actually rise from the dead. 
Thus, the Jewish leaders command Pilate, as earlier, one wonders how much authority does Pilate actually have. They want him to secure the tomb to ensure that Jesus' disciples don't show up to steal the body in the middle of the night, so they could then go around reporting that the tomb is empty. They limit it to the third day because Jesus had said he'd rise on the third day. It's possible that they were prompted to ask for this extra security detail because they heard about Joseph taking the body and having it buried, recognizing his identity as a disciple. Thus, perhaps they fear that Joseph could use his influence to help the other disciples orchestrate such a hoax. They're trying to convince Pilate that Jesus, though quite dead, remains a threat to Rome. If the disciples are able to perpetuate such a hoax then they could convince a large number of gullible Jews that he really was the king he claimed to be. And then the Jewish masses would perhaps really coalesce into a violent uprising. Don't miss the irony here. They're claiming to be afraid of a greater fraud, a greater lie than the earlier lie that Jesus was the true king of the Jews. And yet they themselves are going to be guilty of developing a greater lie than their earlier lie that Jesus was a military threat to Roman power. Professor Charles Quarles summarizes well, this too is a highly ironic statement that betrays the leader's hypocrisy. It is their deception that is actually increasing so that the last lie exceeds the earlier one. The leaders had misled Pilate and the people in order to ensure that Jesus was put to death. After his resurrection, they would spread an even worse lie in order to hide the fact that they were responsible for the crucifixion of one whose messianic claims had been verified by his promised resurrection. Pilate's response is ambiguous. You've got to wonder what Pilate's attitude toward them is at this point. He knows they manipulated him into crucifying an innocent man. Now they're demanding a favor. Footnotes in our English Bible translations indicate that Pilate's first response could be translated as either a command or a statement. He's either saying, you already have a guard, which would be the Jewish temple guards, or he's saying, take a guard, which would be Roman soldiers. Given that later, when everything goes sideways, the Jewish leaders promise to defend the soldiers before the governor, it seems likely that Pilate is granting them a contingent of Roman soldiers. His second statement is quite clipped in Greek, which may reveal his attitude. He begins with a dismissive, go. I'm sure Pilate is wondering how much longer over this long weekend is he going to have to deal with these chief priests. Literally, he then commands them, secure, as you know. Pilate surely wouldn't have felt threatened that Jesus' disciples would come to steal the body. Since those disciples were nowhere to be found when Jesus first came into Pilate's headquarters, they didn't come to his defense, and Pilate didn't hear anyone opposing the mob asking for Jesus' crucifixion. Nevertheless, Pilate agrees to lend them a squad of soldiers for security detail outside this tomb over the next 24 hours. Matthew says they sealed the stone that covered the tomb's entrance. Pilate's own wax seal was probably applied, along with a cord of rope attached to the edges of the stone. Thus, if anyone moved the stone, the seal would have to be broken and the rope cut. And several soldiers were assigned to stand guard. Their job would include staying awake overnight to ensure no one approached the tomb. The irony of this assignment deepens. John Calvin long ago observed, the resurrection of Christ would undoubtedly have been less manifest, or at least they would have had more plausible grounds for denying it if they had not taken pains to station witnesses at the sepulcher. Of course, Matthew will later tell us that these soldiers would be paid off to tell a lie about what really happened. Nevertheless, the soldiers cannot unsee what they see. They might have had to clean off the remains of the wax seal after the stone was rolled away, but they will be the eyewitnesses who first report to the Jewish leaders themselves that angels showed up to open the grave. The tomb was no more secure from angels than was the lion's den where Daniel spent a night. Imperial seals and trained warriors can do nothing to stand in the way of God when he wants to give life. That, of course, is what the story is all about. The death that gives life. God grants life to dead sinners through the death of Jesus. 
The sevenfold testimony Matthew records shapes this central point. God spoke through the temple, ripping its cherubim-covered curtain from top to bottom. Because Jesus has died, the old has passed away and the new has come and it's now here. God shook the earth and split the rocks, telling everyone that he has poured out his wrath on his son. God brought saints out of their tombs and restored their physical life for a time to show that Jesus has abolished death by his death. The Gentile soldiers echoed the main message of Matthew's gospel. They testified that Jesus truly was the Son of God. The women who followed and served Jesus stood watch to verify that Jesus was buried. He was buried, and all who believe in him must be buried with him in baptism, according to Romans 6. Then the rich man, Joseph, testifies unwittingly that Jesus died as Isaiah's suffering servant, as he lays Jesus' lifeless body in his own newly purchased, unused tomb. And finally, the Jewish leaders unwittingly testify the truth, predicting the future with perfect accuracy. The disciples of Jesus will indeed spread the news far and wide that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Paul writes in Romans 6, 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The one who has conquered death for himself and in his own experience shares that victory, that conquest with all who trust in him. Ezekiel's dry bones pictured Israel under the judgment of God, but it also properly pictures all humanity under the judgment of God. Paul describes our natural state in Ephesians 2, 1-3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because the eternal Son of God volunteered to become a man, live a perfectly obedient to God life, die on a cross in order to give his life as a ransom for many sinners, securing forgiveness for their sins, and then to rise from the dead. Because of the gospel events, Paul can go on to write Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Have you received the redemption offered through His death? Have you believed in Him? Have you been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Has God sent the Spirit to breathe new life into your soul? Can the dry bones of your sinful identity live? With God, all things are possible. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the aftermath of Jesus' death and all that it teaches us and shows us. The sacrifice of our Savior has been accepted on our behalf. Thank you for giving your son in such a way. Thank you for his life that stands in for our lives that could never measure up, will always fall short, and yet his didn't fall short. Thank you that he willingly took the mocking and the beatings and the crucifixion itself and breathed his last human breath for our sake. Thank you. That's that's not the end of the story. He rose from the dead and we celebrate still because he's given us new life. He's qualified. He's qualified. Thank you for the overwhelming grace that we see in the life that you've given to us through our faith in the gospel because of these things. Help us to rejoice and live it out faithfully. Fill us up to live life before you in obedience to your word. And help us to look back as often as necessary to see that death on the cross yet again and to see that victorious resurrection and to take it in as fuel for the journey. Motivation to keep going when it's hard, when we're suffering, when there's opposition. Thank you that the power of your grace 
the power of your spirit living within each one of us can overcome all the obstacles that we put up and that the world puts up. You are all powerful and your grace is all sufficient for us. We celebrate and revel in that reality. We commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated for just a couple of minutes.